0: I imagine that you could not have been in the country this week without in some way your attention being directed to a 16-acre plot of land on the southern tip of the island of Manhattan. Uh, coverage of the events related to September 11th has been all over the news news shows, there have been specials, uh, various cable channels have had uh, interesting uh, um, shows devoted to it, uh, coverage has been in the newspaper, on the radio. Uh, you have seen multiple shots, I imagine, of what's going on right now uh, at Ground Zero. And I wonder as you look at it, if you uh, what you think about when, when you see that. If, if you think to yourself, wow, look at all that's been done, or if you think to yourself, you know, after 10 years, it seems like more progress ought to have been made there. Uh, rebuilding that site has been a colossal task. Uh, there was an article about it in last Sunday's newspaper. Perhaps some of you saw it. Uh, there are so many people involved in the process. This is one of the reasons it's been so difficult. Uh, there are a lot of people and a lot of opinions. There's, uh, family members of victims, government officials, businessmen, uh, representatives from the Port Authority. They all want something different there on that site. Uh, and, and at one point in time, the man who became the director of the port authority was trying to figure out everybody who was involved in the process of decision-making, and he discovered that there were 19 public agencies, two developers, 101 contractors, and 33 architects involved in the process. Uh, no one could manage that group, could they? Uh, there's a lot of people involved, and there's a lot of opinions involved about what should be there, and there's a lot of um, ideas. Actually, there's a lot of uh, different sorts of buildings that are supposed to be there when it's finished. Um, office space, a museum, a memorial, a transportation hub, an arts center, a vehicle security center, five skyscrapers and all are supposed to fill that uh, plot of land. And above all of those projects, there will stand a tower that is going to be 1,776 feet tall. Uh, when it's finished, it will be the tallest building in America. Uh, George Pataki, the governor of New York, once dubbed it Freedom Tower, but it was recently renamed to a One World Trade Center. That's the building, the shiny building you see rising uh, near the memorials. Uh, the building's going to cost three point two billion dollars to finish It will have the office space equivalent of forty five football fields in it when it 's done and as it 's designed it 's supposed to be the most secure building in the nation. The first three floors are going to consist of a, a blast wall uh, to to keep uh, bombs from the bottom uh, of toppling the building it 's uh, a blast wall made of uh, three feet concrete concrete, concrete that 's three feet Thick. Uh, the, the center core of the building is going to be made of this same concrete, uh, two to six feet in varying in, in width, all the way up the center of the building. Uh, because fire played such a prominent role in what happened ten years ago, uh, this concrete will be um, uh, not subject to burning. The, the building's basically going to be fireproof the ventilation system is going to have scrubbers and filters in it to uh, ward off any possibility of chemical or biological weapons uh there's an extra uh, two sets of extra wide stairs in the building uh one set for occupants one set for rescuers for emergency personnel this new building by its grandeur and by its presence and by its design is supposed to communicate resiliency And progress. And stability. And security. I want you to think about that building for just a moment this morning and connect it in your mind with one of the Apostle Paul's favorite metaphors or favorite images for the church. Over and over again in the Bible, the Apostle Paul calls the church a building. Or even more specifically, he calls it a temple. And much of what he writes about in, in, in his letters is how to form this building, how the church should be formed, should be built. How, how do you build a building that is resilient, that's forward-focused, that's stable and secure? I can understand how they're doing it uh, at ground zero, but how do you build a stable, secure, forward-looking, resilient building made of people? A group of people with different backgrounds and different ages and different cultures and different socioeconomic conditions. People who, who are strangers. People who may or may not, when they first meet, like each other. How do you form a group of people like that into a church? It's a question that everybody here wants to know the answers to. Everybody here has a stake in this question. Maybe this morning you're visiting. This is your first and perhaps uh, the last time that you'll ever be here. You're just passing through. Your part in this building of the church might be small, but you still have a stake in it in some way. I mean, you came not because you wanted torture today, You want it today to be a pleasant experience in some way. You don't want somebody breaking into your car or mugging you in the foyer while you're here. Rest assured, the muggings in the foyer have gone down dramatically in recent weeks, so don't worry about that. But you have have an interest. You you want this, even if you're just passing through, you want this to be a pleasant experience. Uh, If you come regularly... You have a stake in how this church is formed. You want some help with life. You want some help maybe following Christ. You have a stake in how this, this building that is our church works. Many of you are members and you give and you serve. You invest in this. You certainly have an interest. Some of you are elders. And you're responsible before God for how this building that is the people in our church works. Someday I'm going to stand before God and God's going to say to me, Divinity, what did you do with that congregation of people that I entrusted into your care? How do you form a group of people together into a structure, into a unit that is resilient and forward-thinking and stable and secure? We're going to spend the next several months Answering that question, among other questions, as we open together the book of Ephesians. And in fact, I would like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open with me to the book of Ephesians this morning. <laughs> Prepare yourself what I'm going to say in the next few seconds, you will hear multiple times in the months that are come. Ephesians is in the second half of the Bible. Uh, it is, uh, certainly in the New Testament. When you open your New Testament, you'll find the first four books, which are versions of the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, a history book of the church, two, three large letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, then four smaller letters, actually several smaller letters of Paul. The first one is Galatians, then Ephesians. So find Ephesians. If you're in Hebrews, turn left. If you're in Romans, turn right, and you'll find to Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, uh, my hope is that eventually you'll set your Bible down and it will open to Ephesians automatically. Ephesians is a book that probably you're very familiar with. Some of you would identify it as your favorite book of the Bible. John Calvin said this is his favorite letter. He preached a series of sermons on it in life. In his life, and one of his uh, disciples, John Knox, when he was dying, his wife read to him from Calvin's sermons. Uh, not, not to make him want death sooner, but to soothe him in the process. Uh, John Chrysostom, who's an early church leader, said that this is uh, full of Paul's sublime thoughts and doctrines, which he scarcely utters but declares plainly here in this book. Samuel Coleridge, the poet and philosopher, said that this is one of the divinest compositions of man. It embraces every doctrine of Christianity. F.F. F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, said that the book of Ephesians is the quintessence of Paulinism, the highest you could think of when you think of the Apostle Paul, the I'll continue. He said, This book, in large measure, measure, sums up the leading themes of the Pauline epistles, and at the same time, the central motive of Paul's ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. This is a rich, rich book. My hope today, which is similar to the plans that we have whenever we start a book of the Bible, is to lay a foundation for our study by giving you some background information, some of the things that you need to read Ephesians well. If you've been around for when we have done these introductions to the book, you'll remember that they're a little bit more lecture-like than sermonic, but I want to help prepare you for what's to come in the months that are ahead. Our doctrinal statement says, we believe that the Bible is God's truth for all people for all time. That's what we believe. It's a good statement about the Bible. The Bible is God's truth for all people for all time. But one of the ways that we take the Bible seriously as God's truth is by remembering that it was originally written to a people in a specific time. Namely, the Ephesians around A.D. 60 or 62. And one of the ways that we honor God's truth is by figuring that out or thinking about that or entering that world a little bit so that we can unpack what God's truth for all time for us today is. Um, if, if you open any good Bible study or commentary, it will begin with some, some common introductory matters It will get, tell you a little bit about the author and a little bit about the recipients, maybe the purpose of the book and some of the history of the book. I want to talk about all those things today, and then I want to spend a few minutes going over a couple themes that I think are going to come up repeatedly as we look at the book of Ephesians, maybe to whet your appetite for the rest of this letter um, inside your bulletin, <laughs> we said that a lot today, isn't it? There's a lot of inserts in the bulletin today. Insert a palooza, I think. But uh, there is a, a green sheet that looks like this, and you'll find here some information, a, a chart of the book of Ephesians that I prepared, and um, some information up at the top, just a little bit about the book. This might help you as you think about the book, how it's, it's divided and structured. Um, Let's start this morning by talking about the author, and I want to direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Look what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Uh, Despite the fact that this is a good translation of a verse for which we have a, a, a voluminous amount of textual evidence, if you look today at most biblical scholarship about Ephesians, they will say that Paul did not write this book outside of the evangelical world uh, that is not the prevailing opinion they say that paul uh, paul's style is different paul's vocabulary is different paul's doctrine is different than what's in the book of ephesians and the common thought is that paul was uh, that ephesians was not written by paul but written by a friend of his someone who loved paul who wanted to encourage the church in paul's name uh, when I was in seminary, one of my professors, his name was Harold Honer, was writing a commentary on the book of Ephesians. I own it. He finished it after I was gone. Uh, after I graduated, it's a thousand pages he wrote on this book. Um, and he devoted the first 60 pages to talking about why it's reasonable to believe that Paul wrote Ephesians. I'm not going to go into that detail with you today. It's not necessary. Uh, for us to do, but I, I mention it because I want you to know our opinion of the Bible in many ways confronts with prevailing scholarship you 'll figure this out when you read Time and Newsweek and hear anything about the Bible discussed on the History Channel or uh, MSNBC or PBS or any of the television shows. Um, we are silly enough to believe that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses and that the Gospels were written by disciples about Jesus, and that he really existed and that he really rose from the dead. We we believe that. Uh, we really believe the text when it says that Paul wrote this letter. The reason I mentioned that that to you this morning, and the, the controversy around it and the scholarship, is I want you to know that when you read Time and Newsweek, and you hear things on MSNBC about how silly it is, to believe the traditional conservative things about the Bible, I want you to know that there are good intellectual reasons, good philosophical reasons, defensible literary arguments for believing what we believe about the Bible. We're not just poking around darkly. in the. It, 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 we're, we're not just believing in the face of evidence. We're not approaching the Bible naively. Uh, there are uh, defensible reasons to believe what we do believe. Uh, By ethnicity and training, you know Paul was a devout Jew. He spent most of his life among Gentiles though, didn't he? He he was raised as a very religious Jew and he was pursuing that. And his life was changed by a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. He saw the face of Christ, the man he hated. And he received the grace that he despised, that he didn't think he needed, and it changed his life. And Paul, who was so adamantly chasing down Christians, trying to destroy them, became a preacher to the Gentiles, proclaiming that name of Christ. A Part of Paul's testimony is actually in Ephesians 3. Look at Ephesians 3, if you would here. Ephesians 3, verse 1. This kind of parenthesis, it's in the Bible, uh, in Ephesians 3. For this reason, it says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he says this, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, the stewardship of God's grace. And here's what that stewardship is, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I already have written briefly, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight in the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, here it is, is that through the Gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that later, but verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power, although I am less than the least of all God's people. If you lined up everybody in the whole world who is a follower of Jesus Christ, and you lined them up in order of worthiness, Paul says, I am at the end. The, less, the least of all of God's people. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here's Paul's testimony. I, I'm in prison and I'm writing you this letter and, and this is the greatest privilege that I can ever imagine that I was given this responsibility of preaching and proclaiming God's grace to you. Paul's testimony. And then Ephesians 1.1 tells us about the recipients of this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the followers of Christ in Ephesus. And again, the reception of this letter in Ephesus is debated, but there's enough uh, evidence to believe that verse 1, again, is authentic. Now, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. <laughs> Keep your finger in Ephesians, and if you have a good Bible you should turn to the back and find in the back of your Bible maps. And that's what I want you to do right now. Never buy a Bible that doesn't have maps in the back. If your Bible doesn't have maps in the back, go buy a new one and uh, use it. And I want you to find the map that says Paul's missionary journeys. It's probably the last one, maybe not quite the last one in your list. Now, if you don't have a Bible with maps. Maybe the person sitting next to you does. And while you look jealously at them, they will share their Bible with you. All right, so you have this, this uh, uh, Bible open. It says, the map's open. It says Paul's missionary journey. And the center of this here is the Mediterranean Sea, which is labeled the Great Sea. And you can look and you can see Italy over on the left-hand side. And then Greece is the next landmass there. And then you see what is modern-day Turkey on this map. And if you look on the western shore there, you should see a portion of the, the, the what is modern-day Turkey called Asia. And on the coast is the city of Ephesus. Paul's second and third missionary journeys go through Ephesus. Ephesus is there. It's north of Miletus. It's south of Smyrna. And there you see that city there. Um, we're going to use this map a, a little bit later, but let me talk to you about the city of Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a leading city in the Roman Empire. It was it was an old city. By the time that Paul showed up in about A.D. 52 or so, people had been living there for 1,100 years. This is an old city. Um, it was the chief port. It was the capital of the city of Asia. When Paul wanted to reach a region for the gospel, he went to the city he goes to Ephesus, his main city. It, it was a, a colossally sized city. It had a theater in it for drama uh, that seated 25,000 people. You can still see the, the remnants of that theater today. Um, there was a race course there, uh, but, but the city by far was dominated by the temple of the Greek god Artemis. Or, uh, she was the Greek god Artemis, her Roman equivalent is Diana, the Greek goddess Diana. The temple that was in Ephesus to Artemis was the largest building in the ancient world. It had pillars that were 60 feet tall and the temple itself was the size of a, sick, uh, of a football field. It's was this massive building. Um, Artemis, uh, excuse me, Artemis was the Ephesians' god. They loved Artemis in particular. They, they had a, a meteor in, in Ephesus that had fallen, obviously, from, from the sky, and, and it looked like what they thought Artemis looked like, and they worshipped the stone. There were statues of Artemis all over the town. In fact, they're still finding them in the archaeological digs. Uh, they sometimes credited her with being the wife of the city. She protected the city. They held annual festivals in her honor. They um, uh, would have biweekly parades in honor of Artemis in this city. Her temple was the chief banking center. If you wanted to do money business, you had to go to the temple of Artemis. She was sometimes called the Lord and Savior of the city. Isn't that interesting? Now, think about that for a minute. Knowing that maybe will help you grasp how counter-cultural and how radical it is to follow Jesus Christ. See, in our culture we sit in the shadow of our Judeo-Christian heritage and we don't really see around us that much cultural objections to being a follower of Christ, we actually see either neutral things or affirmations. For for example, um, this is Lancaster County. You've seen them like I do. People on their mailbox put verses of Scripture, right? So you can drive by and see somebody's verse of Scripture, a billboard somewhere, you know, it's Jesus saves or something like that. There's not Quranic verses on the mailboxes in Lancaster County or there's no big signs that, that uh, proclaim the preeminence of Allah. Um, when, when you go to the grocery store, you, you don't uh, buy your groceries and have the, the marketeer, the grocer, uh, invoke Allah's name when, when you buy the groceries. Uh, you go to the bank, and when you go to the bank, there's not a statue of Buddha, where everybody's expected to make a little offering in a box when you exchange your money. That's not what happens to you. Uh, Athletic events. In in order to join the Y, your neighbor did not have to promise her loyalty to the goddess Shiva and proclaim that Shiva was the Lord and protector. Uh, In order to uh, join the army, you didn't have to proclaim uh, by oath that Caesar is Lord. See uh the Ephesians lived in a culture like that and they were there as 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 followers of Christ who believed and affirmed that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord so that phrase Jesus is Lord is so important in the Bible in this multi-religious environment they proclaim Jesus is Lord Jesus Christ is Lord he is the Lord and savior he is the protector not Artemis, not Shiva, not Buddha. Buddha wouldn't have been alive, obviously. Uh, not, 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 not any of the other gods that, that you're worshiping. I am solely committed to Jesus Christ. You see how countercultural that would be? How do you join the army if, in order to join the army, you have to say Caesar is Lord? Can you join the why if you have to uh, acknowledge a commitment to some foreign God? How do you do banking? if if when everybody else who leaves the bank leaves that offering and and, and you don't how how do you do that christianity is markedly counteral counter culture cultural we don't see those trappings in our world quite so much the external trappings you should though feel the internal trappings the internal conflict of that the internal counterculturalness of being a follower of christ that theme is actually in Ephesians quite a bit. I want to direct your attention to Ephesians four seventeen to twenty. Look what Ephesians four seventeen to twenty says: "You are they were experienced. They, the Ephesians every day saw signs outside that they were different, but inside there were to be differences too." Verse seventeen: "So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking." They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. See, in contrast to those around you, Paul says to the Ephesians, you are supposed to be spiritually sensitive. You are supposed to be pure. You are supposed to be connected to God and how you live. In other words, you are in Christ. And if your faith is real and it's transforming you, you should feel this tension that Paul brings out in this letter, this, this tension of living in this world that says, I don't belong here. There are things that the people around me value that I don't value. There are things they love that I don't love. There are things they're committed to that I am not committed to because of my greater allegiance to Jesus Christ. You know one place that you should feel that tension? You you should feel that tension when you watch commercials on television. Because commercials on television will tell you that eating a candy bar will satisfy you. Or spraying your body with something will attract beautiful women despite what kind of a nerd you are, and that will make you happy. Or that getting a new couch or a new car or drinking the right type of beer will get you the friends that you desperately want. If you're a follower of Christ, you know that no candy bar can satisfy you. And that women who would be attracted to you because of how you smell are not worth catching. And and that that uh, um, a car and beer will not give you friends that are worth having. You should feel that tension when you watch commercials. I know some of you sit down to television, watch television, and you don't think that much about what's there. Maybe that's the problem. Are you concerned about how much you feel that tension or how you don't feel that tension? I, I'm concerned about it in my own life when I see those things. So this is the the, the situation that the Ephesians are in, and it's one really that we're in To them, it was probably more visible or as visual outside as it is inside. For us, it's primarily inside. That's the author. That's the recipient. Let's talk about how these two get together. And to do that, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to have you turn to the book of Acts And we're going to look at Acts 16 and the book of maps, (laughs) Paul's missionary journeys at the same time. All right. So keep one finger in the book of Acts chapter 16 and one finger in the book, uh, well, in Paul's missionary journey, his map at the end. All right. And here we go. Uh, We're going to look at the map first, actually. If you'll notice here on Paul's missionary journeys, way over on the right is the city of Antioch. This is Paul's missionary headquarters. This is Paul's sending church. His home church was in Antioch. And the first missionary journey he went on, in my Bible, it's purple, um, he went first, you can trace the line, he went first to Cyprus, that island that's out in the Mediterranean Sea, and then he went up into what's the middle of today, uh, modern day um, uh, Turkey. And he visited those cities along in there, Iconium and Antioch in Asia Minor and Lystra and Derby. All those cities are in a region called Galatia and they, those cities were the recipients of the letter he wrote to the Galatians. And after he visited those cities, he went home back to Antioch to give a report about his trip. Then the church in Antioch sent him out again on his second missionary journey. And this time he didn't go to Cyprus. Instead, he went north uh, through Turkey and revisited some of those churches. And then he went uh, up into the north of modern-day Turkey, the north in Asia. And the Bible says something very interesting about what he wanted to do at this point in time. Acts 16.6, look what it says here. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia, it was very cold there, and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy, look at this, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. That's a strange verse, I think. Paul's very strategic and he wants to go to Ephesus. He wants to go down to those cities on the coast so he can have ministry there because he knows how important they will be. And in some way, he he was strategic, but he was also submissive. And in some way, the Spirit was telling him, don't go there. I know you want to, but do not do it, and Paul submitted. Instead, what he did is he went over into Greece. Uh, modern-day Greece, and he went to Neapolis and Philippi and Amphipolis and Thessalonica and Berea, and those are all cities. You should recognize Thessalonica and Philippi from the Thessalonians and the Philippian letters. He went down to Corinth, and according to Acts chapter 18, verse 19, he met friends in Corinth. Look at Acts, well, um, let's see. In Acts 18, rather, he met a couple Named Priscilla and Aquila, and they were good Bible teachers and evangelists. And in Acts 19, excuse me, 1819, Acts chapter 18, verse 19, they left Corinth, where they were for 18 months or so, and went to Ephesus. Look what it says here, verse 19. Paul's on his second missionary journey. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. And he goes, if you follow the map here, back down to Jerusalem and then back up to Antioch. So in a second missionary journey, Paul goes to Ephesus. He stays for a few weeks, maybe just a few days. He leads Priscilla and Aquila there, uh, and they're discipling the new believers that are there, and Paul goes to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch. On his third missionary journey, which um, you can probably trace here, one of the places that he goes immediately is Ephesus. And he ends up in Ephesus for some time. And all of Acts 19 is devoted to his ministry at Ephesus. In fact, look at Acts 19.1, and we're going to kind of walk through what happens here a little bit. Acts 19.1, while Apollos um, was at Corinth, another co-worker of Paul's, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he begins serving them. And you see here his what he does and how he works in verse 8. Look at verse 8 of Acts chapter 19. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way or Christianity. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. What kind of a guy do you have to be to get that name? (laughs) Your mom and dad don't love you if they name you Tyrant. That's just the way. Maybe when you were two, that's the way it was. Anyway, verse 10. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul was in Ephesus for two years serving there, and notice it was a kind of a missionary base. The gospel is going out all over Asia as Paul is in Ephesus preaching, and amazing things are happening. Verse 11 tells us about them. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. This is astounding. It's astounding work that Paul is doing. And there's this response to the, the miraculous work and the preaching work that Paul is doing. Two responses. Number one, people stop giving up, uh, start giving up their magic. We'll talk about magic in a few minutes. But look at verse 19 of Acts 19. A number who... Well, let's look at verse 18 here. Um, No, we're going to start at verse 17. (laughs) Verse 17. When this became known, Paul's ministry, expanding here, became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Oh, for that to be so. Isn't that a marvelous phrase? The name of Jesus was held in high honor. Oh, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to fifty thousand drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Uh, This week was book, uh, book, banned book week. Maybe some of you saw headlines about that banned book week. The National Library Association sponsors this. It's their effort to um, uh, hysterically respond to people who um, have concern about books that are in public libraries. And, and they're accused of wanting to censor or ban or burn books. This group of people here, are, they're not a bunch of, of fundamentalists trying to destroy um, literature, There are men and women whose lives have been transformed and this is their old lives. This is their old life. And they're bringing their old life and they're getting rid of it. They're burning it. I don't want this anymore in my life. And they're doing it at great cost. Um, 5,000 drachmas is millions of dollars that they're giving up for the sake of Christ. So that's one thing that happened in response to Christ's ministry. The other is, uh, Paul's ministry, excuse me. The other thing that's happening is that people are not worshiping Artemis anymore, which is causing problems for people who make little Artemis statues. If you make little Artemis statues and nobody's worshiping Artemis anymore, nobody's buying your statues. So they got a problem. Look at verse 23 of Acts 19. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, about Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, "Men, you know we receive a good income from this business.'" And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger. Look at what really matters to him. There is danger not only to our trade, <laughs> that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess is herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. People aren't worshiping Artemis anymore. And what that means for the little Artemis idol makers is they're not making money anymore. So they get angry about this and they have a riot. Good old fashioned a riot. And they get together in that, that theater and they fill it with 25,000 people that are upset and enraged about what Paul's doing. And I love the Apostle Paul because verse 30 says, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. Let me, Adam, Paul says, when am I going to have a chance to have 30,000 people who are very interested in me in one place? Give me a chance to tell them about Jesus Christ. You love Paul, right? He's, he's going for it. Uh, but the disciples would not let him. <laughs> Wisely, cooler heads prevailed, and Paul leaves the scene. And what happens after this is that Paul eventually goes back to Jerusalem. He's arrested in Jerusalem. He's in prison for two years there. He's shipped to Rome and then he's in prison again in Rome for two years. And while he's in prison, he meets a man by the name of Tychicus who visits from uh, the churches in Asia and it comes to talk to Tychicus, uh, to, comes to talk to Paul, and Paul, in response to some of the things that Tychicus says, writes letters. He writes a letter to the Ephesians, he writes a letter to the Colossians, and he writes a letter to Philemon. And Tychicus is the the postmaster who carries the letters back to these churches. Um, Ephesians reveals to us that, that there doesn't seem to be a specific problem in the city of Ephesus, in the church of Ephesus. No looming threats uh, unlike the church in Corinth, or unlike the church in Colossae, or Galatia, there weren't false teachers, uh, there was no flagrant immorality. Paul was just writing this letter to build the church in strength and stability, to encourage them. Now, you'll see at the top of the chart here, this green chart that I, that I made, um, you'll see uh, that I have subtitled this book, that Ephesians could be subtitled, Filled to Overflowing. Ephesians, there's a book about the grace of God that fills us to overflowing. That phrase is loosely based on Ephesians 3.19 where Paul prays, he prays that the church in Ephesus would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. If you fill something to the measure of God's fullness, how full is it? <laughs> Very full. We experienced this week overflow, didn't we? Uh, We were filled to overflowing. Uh, The Conestoga was, the Susquehanna was, creeks where your basement was, filled to overflowing. Now, the people in Texas desperately needed the water that we all got this week. And Ephesians is like a rainstorm that comes to Texas. Ephesians is like... Uh, Or the grace of God that Ephesians describes is like water that falls on land that's burning, that's dry. And it it puts out the fire and it washes away the ash and it fills the creeks and fills the streams and fills the the wells. That's what Ephesians is like. That's what the grace of God is like and Ephesians tells us about it. We have been filled to overflowing. Uh, There are two elements in particular in in Ephesus that I want to finish by telling you about that we're filled to overflowing with two themes. First of all, we're filled to overflowing with love. We're filled to overflowing with love. Paul writes about love in these six chapters more than anywhere else in the Bible, except for 1 Corinthians 13. But this book is about love. Let me read you some of the verse Verse 5, it says, In love, God predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Paul prays that we would know how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ. And in chapter 5, Paul says, Christ loved us and gave us up for, gave Himself up for us. Then, he turns from, we have been loved, we have been loved, we have been loved. And then he says, now go... And love one another. In recent years, uh, I, I hope that you have been noticing in me a, uh, uh, a greater emphasis on how necessary it is for you to be deeply connected to men and women who are your fellow followers of Christ. I hope you noticed that, and, and I, I, I hope I hope that it's an emphasis of an echo from Paul in Ephesians. See, Paul is not in these pages speaking like a... When he says that you must love one another, you should love one another. Paul is not being like a politician addressing Congress calling for bipartisanship. That's not what he's doing. And he's not being like a mother sitting in the front seat of her car whacking her children in the back seat saying, would you knock it off? That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians that it is, if the love of God is in you, it will change you so that you will love other people. It will fill you up and it will come out. It will splash out on people who are different than you, who are maybe strange to you, who, who share your common commitment to Christ. This love that we have experienced, Paul, Paul writes about it, He writes about the fact that we are naturally, our natural condition before God is that we're enemies of God. Abraham Lincoln once said that the best way to destroy your enemies is to make them friends. It's exactly what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? He, in love, the Bible tells us, came and offered himself on the cross Paid the penalty for sin that we owed God, that we might be adopted as sons. And the book of Ephesians reminds us of a God who stands at the doorway to heaven and issues the invitation to every person on earth, oh, come in, come in, come in. Receive love and forgiveness from me. You receive it by faith, by trusting in him. And the book of Ephesians wants to drive that love deep within your heart. It wants you to know it and to cherish it and to value it. And it will fill you up and it will overflow on other people. Love has that transforming effect on you. Several years ago, I think I told you about a a couple by the name of Perry and Sandy Downs. Uh, I read about them in a book that D.A. Carson wrote on one of the prayers in, uh, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I may repeat this in a few weeks. Perry and Sandy Downs live in, uh, uh, outside of Chicago, Illinois, and they're foster parents. And over the years, they've had lots and lots of kids come into their home. Uh, some stay for a few weeks, some stay for a few months. Most of the kids that come into their house are older children or, or teenagers, a lot of them. Well, they received a call one day from the agency that they foster with, uh, and they said, we have two 18-month-old twin boys. Will you take them into your house? 18 months? old? wow. Well, uh, th- you'll only have them for a few days. Please take them, would you? All right, we'll take them. First night, they, they the twin boys came home, uh, and they, they put the boys to bed, and the, not a peep, not a sound from this room. Perry went in to check on them, and he found both of these 18-month-old boys um, lying in their bed crying, weeping. The pillows were wet. But they had been taught in all of their other foster homes that if they made noise when they cried, they'd get beaten. Just, see, the Downs were like the ninth foster home these kids had been in. And in every single one, they'd been neglected and abused and forgotten, To the point that they had been evaluated, these 18-month-old boys, and they were 18 months old, and doctors said, they're damaged beyond repair. They will never be normal in life because of everything that's happened to them. Well, the Downs had these kids in their house. uh, A few days turned into a few weeks, which turned into a few months. The Downs had these two boys for two years in their house. Uh, When they were finally adopted after these uh, kids had been there for two years, Um, Perry and Sandy had loved on them and loved on them and loved on them for these two years so that by every measure when they left the Downs house, they were completely normal and above average in all of their skills. You see, love has transforming effects. Love changes people. And in Ephesians, we find the best love that there is, it's God's love that changes us. It changes us into loving people. The best example of it is the cross of Jesus Christ. The best triumph, the best announcement of God's love. So we're filled to overflowing with God's love. The second thing that, that Ephesians tells us is that we're filled to overflowing with power, Filled to overflowing with power. The Ephesians had this struggle with the cult of Artemis, but there were also it, it, Ephesus was filled with magicians, people who were obsessed with magic and spells and sorcery and and words. In fact, there was a group in Ephesus of people who would use Jesus' name like uh, abracadabra Jesus, and they would try to do miracles by using Jesus' name that way. It didn't work out well for them. Read in Acts nineteen. Paul wants you to know, though, you have been filled with power. Ephesians 1.19 says, I want you to know, Paul says, the incomparable great power that is ours, uh, it's the power that God used when He raised Christ from the dead. What power is that? It's great power. And what are you supposed to do with that power? You're supposed to use that power in Ephesians 6.10 to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. The power of a transformed life what I hope we see in the next several weeks from the book of Ephesians. We see God's love overflowing in our congregation and power of transformed lives. One World Trade Center will be done in a few years and the people who are building it hope that you love the building. They hope that you think it's great. They hope if you're a business owner that you'll think it's secure and stable and move your company into that building. They hope if you're a tourist, you'll come and you'll spend your money to to go up in the elevator to the heights so that you can see the city. They want it to be an attractive, stable, secure building. We're on the hunt for that sort of thing in our church. We want our congregation to be attractive, progressive, forward-thinking, stable, and secure. And by God's grace, our hope is that God will use the book of Ephesians to produce that in us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we're grateful to you for this book that is before us as we start our um, uh, journey through it. Uh, Father, we count this word as very dear as it coming from you for us And we again affirm this morning our submission to it. We will heed what you have to say. We will contemplate it. We will consider it. We will meditate on it. We will speak to one another about it. And our prayer and our hope is that it will not be in vain, but that you will accomplish in us what you purpose through this good word. Help us to submit joyfully, gladly, uh, and uh, truthfully to what you say. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We've been singing about God's grace today, and we're going to continue. We'll finish by singing a song that triumphs in God's grace.